0: Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us in the book of Judges chapter 3, Judges chapter 3. We'll begin reading in a moment in verse 7, Judges 3, 7. If I were to ask you, what is the biggest threat to your faithfulness to God, if you interview the culture the culture would say it is the problem of suffering. In other words, the reason why people don't follow God is because their life is hard and they associate God with goodness or love or tenderness or mercy or all these things. And if God is all of that, then why is my life hard? So the culture would say that the biggest threat to your following God is the fact that life is broken or hard, and therefore that negates any motivation you might have to follow God because God is not good. That's what the culture would say. You might be tempted to join the culture in that opinion and say, well, the hardest thing about following God is also the fact that God is Often, not good from where I sit. But I would tell you that the Bible doesn't agree with that and in fact has another reason for why people for the most part are unfaithful. And that is because God has blessed them so much that they forget the one who gave them all of this. It's pretty much the story of the book of Judges. Israel has been gifted with freedom. They were slaves for 400 years. God delivered them to the edge of the promised land. They were scared, so they didn't go in. They rejected God in spite of God's blessings, in spite of God's promises, so they wandered in the wilderness until the adults among them died. Then Joshua brings them into the promised land, and God gives them this prosperity. They're going to drink from wells they don't dig and live in houses they didn't build etc. But in spite of that, they have come in this season, the book of Judges covers a, a season of about 200 years. They've come in this season to forget God. The people who brought them there, who saw all that exodus, they saw the Red Sea, they saw manna, water from the rock they saw the provision of God they saw the march into the promised land the falling down of the walls of Jericho all the people who are actually eyewitnesses to that and their children who heard from their parents who were eyewitnesses all of those people are dead and the grandchildren of those people have forgotten. That's the problem with grandchildren, isn't it? They don't know what you know. They've never seen what you've seen. They've never felt what you've felt. You wish they knew and felt what you know and feel, but they don't. Unless you give it to them, unless you bang it bang that drum day after day after day after day i promise you your grandchildren will forget the lessons you've learned they will and they did and we come now to the book of judges and there is no king in israel (laughs) so as we're going to see by the time they get to the end of the book the people did whatever they wanted If there's no law, if there's no leader, if there's no purpose, we're all just sort of wandering around aimlessly, just sort of moistening our finger and hold it in the air and say, I wonder which way the wind's blowing. What am I going to do today? Who am I going to live for today? What's the purpose and meaning of life? This aimless wandering through life will always lead you away from God. So what you have in the book of Judges is this profound prosperity, houses, entire cities that are just handed to these people, and they forget God. They just forget God. Moses warns them of this, coincidentally, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read beginning in verse 11, Deuteronomy 8, 11 this is before moses dies obviously before joshua dies before joshua's children die this is several 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 decades before the book of judges but this is moses warning in Deuteronomy 8:11 take care Lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God has gotten me this wealth if there's a verse that better describes the contemporary circumstance that we live in I'm not sure where it is so many have become arrogant in believing that somehow God is not in play God is not responsible God is not the one who gave us all of this. He says there, concluding in verse 18, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Do you, do you see that verse? Leave that up, if you will, Laura. Why did God give you wealth? That He could confirm His covenant in you god made a promise that he would prosper his people and you are his people you're just the latest installment of the multiplied chapters of god's book you're just the latest chapter and god promised that he would prosper his people and that in prospering his people he would prosper the seed of the woman that he would care for the name of Jesus that in Jesus his people whom he loves would prosper and in their prosperity they would carry the gospel wherever they go So if they go to the coffee shop, or if they go to the lunch counter, or if they go to the beach, or the mountains, or the lake, or if they go anywhere they go, if they go to work or to school, or if they go to the ends of the earth, they're going to take Jesus with them, because Jesus is the one who is the wind under their wings. The lift in your soul is because of Jesus. And that's the song that needs to be on our hearts. And that's the reason God blesses his people. And in the book of Judges, we find out that in spite of all of the kindness of God and giving them the power to to have stuff, they forget God. So the question is, when you read the book of Judges, it it is just this... I use this analogy. It's a, it's if you will, it is a spiraling downward. We're going to read today about the first judge. He has a very strange name. We never heard this guy's name in our lives. Othniel. Othniel. None of you have children named Othniel. Pretty sure, or grandchildren. I'm pretty sure you don't even have dogs and cats named Othniel. Othniel. What? He's the first judge. And we're going to find this story of Othniel. Well, listen, in the book of Judges, he's the best. He's the best one. And the rest of them, increasingly, all the way down to Samson, who's the last one, are increasingly worse. This thing for 200 years is going to go from bad to worse. And the only hope that they have is the only hope we have. It turns out that the question that begs asking is, what is God going to do with these rebellious people? How is God going to fix this? Or to use language that we're all familiar with, how is God going to save these people? Well, in a, in a if you will, a, a temporal way, God is going to raise up a judge. Remember, a judge here is not a judicial guy. He's a military guy. They're, they're all going to use weapons. But all their weapons are different some of them use what we would call regular warfare and some of them like Gideon are not going to use regular warfare at all in fact God's going to make sure that he doesn't use any of that that he's going to break pots literally listen to me break pots that's how you're going to win break pots so these are military people they're judges who have been raised up How will God save them? Well, there is a lesson in the way God saves them for us in the manner in which God intends to save us. So that's why we're studying the book of Judges today and over the next several weeks. So there's the question, how will God save us? So we're going to read Judges chapter 3, verse 7 to 11. There's only five verses about this judge. Now, one word of further clarification. There are 12 judges mentioned in the book of Judges, 12. Six of them are, giving, are given at least five verses. A couple of them, Gideon and Samson. Samson's given two chapters. We know more about Samson's story than we know about Othniel. But there is a pattern in all of them, and that pattern is going to go something like this. You're going to see this plainly there's five there's five verses we're going to read and all this, this is this basically the outline of these five verses and it's the same outline in all of these judges there are six of these major judges or if you will long stories and there's six of these minor judges that some of them we know absolutely nothing about a couple of them we know one or two sentences about but then there are these six judges that we know five, six, seven, twelve, fifteen 12, 15 verses about, or even in the case of Samson, two chapters. So six major, six minor, but they all have the same story, only different. Just like us, we all have the same story. Really, we're, we're, we're all the same, we are. We, we, we have the same story these people do. This is us, this is a book about us. Only different. So what you're going to find is that, you'll see this as we read, that God identifies that the people have forgotten God. We call it sin. You can call it apostasy. You can call it idolatry. You can call it worldliness. You can call it whatever you want. It's, it's, it's essentially unbelief. God is not my answer. Sort of. The biggest threat to the church today is the voice of the culture in our ear that says God is a lie or a liar. And that whole religion thing, that whole sacrificial living, denying self, take up your cross and follow me story is bogus. That's the voice of the culture in your ear. And if you believe that, then you're more prevalent in the book of Judges than you thought. So the first thing we're going to see is the sin or apostasy or unbelief. Then we're going to see God's response, which is usually oppression. God's going to raise up somebody to spank them. Then we're going to see some aspect of crying out Uh, in the New Testament terminology, we might use the word repentance. There's some big dialogue amongst Bible interpreters of whether or not this is true repentance. The good news of this book is that even if this is not what we would call true believing repentance, God is merciful just because they cry out, because God is pitiful toward his people. Think of that. God is pitiful toward his people i was reminded of that this week i was talking with a pastor friend who was here for our pastor's conference we hosted this week and we've been we we're talking about the kindness and mercy of god and we were reminded that god told abraham that he needed to get lot out of sodom because god is going to kill all the people of sodom and gomorrah And you'll remember Abraham began to pray, God, if there be 50 righteous people in Sodom, will you spare the city? You'll recall in Genesis, the Bible says, God said, yes, I will. I will spare the entire city if there's but 50 righteous people. And you remember Abraham began to keep winding that number down 40 how about 40 you you give me 50 how about 40 Abraham becomes a bit of an auctioneer in his prayer how about 40 yeah okay 30 yeah 30 30 how about 20 yeah how about how about 10 if there's 10 righteous people in Sodom will you spare the city (laughs) God said he would he would You know, I hear people say all the time, you know, America deserves the judgment of God. Be careful, friend. The good news of the mercy of God is that he was willing to spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there had been 10 righteous people. God is more merciful than you know. He is more merciful than you think. In fact, that whole exercise of Abraham going from 50 down to 10 was a lesson for Abraham that you started up here because that's what you thought God was. Turns out, God is not like what you think he is. He is more loving. He is more forgiving. He is more patient. He is more kind. He is more merciful than you know and that you can even comprehend or certainly that you believe he is. But... God does have a bottom. He has a limit. And in the case of the judges, we're going to find in these six judges, major judges that we're going to consider over the next six weeks, we're going to find that God found his bottom every time. And he judged Israel from heaven. We're going to see that. Then God delivers them, delivers them. They cried out, and God delivers them. And then they have peace. And boy, don't we love peace. God, just take it away. Just take the sorrow away, take the cancer away, take the death away, take the grief away, take the the pain away, take the difficulty away. God, just take it away. Can we do a full rewind or a complete reset and just have peace? The answer is yes, friend, you can. But not in the way most people think. Do you want to live in a world where there is no more death and dying? Well, that day's coming, but it's not here. We've been called to walk through a minefield, if you will, a battlefield. And everywhere we look, there is sorrow. That's the nature of life. We just want some rest and some peace. And God gives us these moments of peace, moments of respite, moments of comfort, but they they don't last in this life because our enemy is coming again. He's coming again at us. He's, he, he's mounting a counter offensive, and he does it in ways we least expect it. If you think you're oblivious or that somehow you're going to go through life unscathed, friend, you're not. And you better have a plan for crisis. Susan and I grew up in South Texas. There are no tornadoes where we grew up, uh, they're just sand. I mean, sand. I I, I didn't know what a basement was, and I sure didn't know what a tornado shelter was. Then we moved to Dallas, and there are some tornadoes in the Dallas area occasionally, and I noticed occasionally you'd run into people who had tornado shelters. One of my brothers is spending a lot of time working uh, in Oklahoma, west of Oklahoma City right now, and they're building these new subdivisions And uh, I I asked him, this is just prairie. I mean, literally just prairie. And they're building these enormous subdivisions, and he's in the cable uh, business, and they're putting in fiber optic cable all over western Oklahoma and so forth. And so I asked him, well, what are they doing out there? You know, how's that going? He said, well, you know, it's just typical track home development. But he said, the one thing you note about every house in western Oklahoma, they have a generator and a tornado shelter. Every single house. Why is that? Because they live in a world that demands that. So I want to ask you the question what kind of world do you live in? I'll tell you what kind of world you live in. You live in a world where people are hurting and people are suffering and people are having their confidence threatened day after day or they're having their joy robbed from them. And you better have a plan for how to antidote that. You better have a rescue plan for your sorrow a rescue plan for your pain a rescue plan for your sin because the problem is not just outside of you the problem is also inside of you the notion that somehow we're going to escape from the trials and tribulations of life betrays the suggestion that we are going to take our own problems with us everywhere we go That brings us to the Scripture. Let's read. Verse 7. people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. Those are the Canaanite gods. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of cushan Rishathan, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim. Try to say that with crackers in your mouth. Eight years. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. And who is that deliverer? Some guy named Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So Othniel is the nephew of Caleb. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan-Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So that's a pretty straightforward story. We don't know a whole lot about this guy. That's right, but we know enough. We know enough to learn. This is the first of the six major judges in the book of Judges. So we note several things. We're just going to highlight these quickly. Number one, verse seven, Israel did what was evil. None of these things happened apart from the failure of Israel. Make no mistake, friend, Israel is culpable. This stuff happens because Israel is broken, because Israel is rebellious, because Israel is not acting and doing and thinking and feeling and talking like the people of God. They're not. This is the problem in the church today. We claim to be the people of God, and then we go out and demonstrate another position. We act like the world, we believe like the world, we talk like the world, we choose like the world, we keep up with the world, and we think that somehow the world is our measuring stick. Israel did what was evil, and notice quick, quickly he says, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, they forgot. Just, just, just read the Bible one day, and look at how many times the Bible says Remember. Or the Lord remembers. Just, just, just look at the word remember. How many times does it show up? A lot. In fact, that's the very verb the Bible uses in Revelation 2 when he speaks to the church at Ephesus. You better remember or else. You better remember your first love. You better remember that or else I'm coming and I'm going to remove your lampstand. And history proves that, in fact, God did. The church at Ephesus circled the drain because they forgot God. And there is no church too big to fail. There is no family too big to fail. There is no person in this room Or watching via live stream today that is oblivious to sin you can fail and you do fail in ways that you don't want the rest of us to know but God knows but let us not forget God in the midst of that let's cry out to God so quickly let me say in this case this is a recurring forgetfulness this is an even an abandonment of God But it is a warning for us that God does not intend for his people to forget. To forget that God has blessed us and cared for us and shepherded us and brought us along. I'm I'm in my latter years of life based on typical life expectancy. Unless I'm going to live to 130 or so, I've probably crossed the 50-yard line. I got a lot more memories than I probably have future, many of you also. I would just simply ask you, what are you doing with all that? What are you doing with those memories? What are you doing with those experiences? What are you doing with the travels of your life with God? What are you doing with those lessons, with those principles, with those truths? Are they the foundation of your life? Are they the bedrock of your life? Are they that which you know that if the entire house burns down, that's the precious moments that you're going to make sure that you take with you? I hope so. I surely hope so. Don't do what Israel did. They forgot, and they did what was evil. They jettisoned God. At the end of the day, these are the things I need, and God is over here. He's not part of the things I need. They forgot. Notice in verse 8, God brought judgment or oppression, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Trust me, you don't want to fight God. I don't like your chances. You say, well, I'm just going to hate God. Well, I don't like that strategy either. That's like Hating somebody and wishing they got cancer, but instead bringing cancer on yourself how does you getting cancer hurt anybody else whom you 're mad at or bitter toward etc it's, it''s not it's not the solution in, in, in this case they God brought judgment or oppression he brought discipline now, there's a word that Gets misunderstood. I, I, I think the contemporary mind, particularly outside of the church, believes that God is just this heavenly hatchet and he just, just can't wait to drop the hatchet on us and, and mangle our lives and destroy our lives and, and tear us up and cut us into pieces and so forth. In fact, the Bible has quite the opposite opinion of God. And as a Christian, you better make sure you have the opposite opinion because you're going to live in the world where you're going to have to contend with your own. Discipline, your own receiving of discipline, as well as looking at others and trying to be a, if you will, an advisor or counselor to them. The Lord disciplines us. Consider these words in Hebrews 12, uh, verse 5. Hebrews 12, 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? He quotes here from Proverbs in the book of Job. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You are not my son. Susan and I have three girls, and we don't have any sons. But the principle is the same. We have three. We don't have four. We don't have five. We don't have 25. We have three. So we have the responsibility to discipline three growing up, But nobody else. We couldn't come to church and say, I'm going to bring my long wooden spoon because I've got to discipline some kid in Sunday school. We don't do that. We're not going to do that. We never have done that. We're not going to do that. You don't walk around looking to discipline somebody else's child. You wish they would hurry up and do it. But that's not your job. But it is your job to discipline your own child some way. And there's all manner of ways to discipline. I'm not suggesting that there there is any one way. But the point is, if you love your child, you will not let them persist in disobedience. You will get in their face and say, what is going on here? I'm in a position to make your life miserable. Why does God bring judgment or oppression or discipline? Because He loves. That's the point He's making. Verse uh, 10, Hebrews 12, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. In other words, He does all this because He loves us. What is God doing in Israel? He's loving them. You say, well, it doesn't feel like love. God's turning them over to Kushan Rishathayim by the way the phrase Rishathayim means double something and there's a big debate over exactly what it means but Mesopotamia is the land between the Tigris and the Euphrates ancient Iraq so he is the king of Mesopotamia so he is in this case, most commentators would say that that name means double evil, double, double sorrow. He is the king from the double rivers who is the king of double sorrow. Maybe that's a play on words, but the point, of course, is he's not just real bad, he's double bad. He's a bad man. God brought discipline through a very bad man. That bugs people as well. Stay tuned for news here. There's a third thing we see here. This is a pattern. Verse 9, And Israel cried out. Israel cried out. Now, it could be they are repenting. It could be they're just crying out. They're just, Woe is me. What's what's the fix? What's the solution? It's just running around in a bunch of hand-wringing behaviors. We see that in our country. Every now and then there is some natural disaster or some great calamity. Uh, Harken back to anything that's on your mind right now. You'll remember that there's an awful lot of hand-wringing. The media comes together and says, oh, what's the purpose of this? And they'll bring in a talking head and they'll bring in a clergyman or they'll bring in a so-called sociologist or counselor or whatever. And everybody pools their opinions and we're supposed to be comforted by that. I've found that uncertainty doesn't really help my comfort. Well, you know, that guy thinks it's this, or that guy thinks it's that, or those people over there, they say it's that. What am I to do? How am I to find rest or peace? Well, at the end of the day, we cry out because we need and want peace desperately. In this case, verse 10, the scripture says, he brought a deliverer. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. He judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave old double trouble, cushan Rishathayim, the man from double rivers. I always want to call him Snowy River, but I'm going to move along here. The Lord gave Cushon into his hand, and his hand prevailed. We don't know any of the details. We're going to know the details when we get to Gideon and Samson, but we don't know the details here. This is the Cliff Notes version. Israel cried out, and the Lord raised up a deliverer. Now, what's significant about this deliverer? The Scripture says the Spirit of the Lord was with him. In other words, what's really going on here? Well, it turns out that God wants to save his people, and he puts his spirit upon a man, a man to serve God, a man to do the work. Now this is an- another thing that challenges us because it bugs us that first of all, God raises up evil to accomplish his will. If, if you struggle with that, I, I, I have a passage of scripture that will help you with that momentarily. But then we, then we want to say, well, it wasn't the Lord. It was just Othniel. Othniel is the guy. You know, Othniel is just, and we want to make Othniel the man of virtue. Now, he could have been a man of great virtue. We don't know any more about him than what we hear, read here. He's, he's the son of Caleb's younger brother. And we like Caleb. Caleb's a good guy. That, that means he's, a, he's from good family. He's probably a good guy. So the reason God used Othniel is because Othniel is such a good guy. Well, I'll tell you, it's a big leap between what the Bible says about Othniel to you determining that Othniel's a good guy because that's not in there. Now, he might be, but he might not be because some of these other people he's going to use are not good guys. Samson is no rock star. But God uses Samson, and in fact, the book of Hebrews brags on Samson. So stick around, because six weeks from now, we're going to talk all about Samson, and some of you are going to have your world rocked by a man who couldn't keep his eyes in his head for looking at women. And God had his eyes gouged out. And then used him to save Israel. Hmm. Bet you can't wait. (laughs) It's gonna be good. Othniel, what do we know about Othniel? Pretty much nothing. But we do know this the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. You see, the big deal in the Bible is not Othniel, the big deal in the Bible is the Lord. There's one hero, and he is the Lord. There's one power, and he is the Lord. There's one Savior, and he is the Lord. There is one who gives comfort, and he is the Lord. But the Lord uses people like Othniel to provide for that. (coughs) Let me give you an illustration. There is a a difference between being the instrument and being the agent. And uh, I have my pen here. Somebody pull out my pen. If I write you a note, I'm going to write you a note. I'm going to hand it to Fred. Fred, I'm going to say, good morning, Fred. Tear that little note off, right it to Fred. Fred's gonna say, Well, Greg wrote me a note. Now you might parse that a little bit and you say, Well, I noticed that Greg was holding the pen, but the pen wrote the note. The pen. And you'd be right, the pen wrote the note. But who was running the pen? Greg. So who wrote the note? Yes. So in this case, who raised up Othniel? God, Who used Othniel? God. Who did the work? God. Well, I thought it was Othniel. Right. Right. So God raises up people. Turns out God uses all kinds of people, and he uses all kinds of instruments. Let me just show you a counterpoint, all right? Look down at the end of this chapter. We're not going to make a big deal out of this, but look at verse 31. Judges 7. The third judge mentioned in Judges 7, this is one of the minor judges that says nothing more about him. His guy's name is Shamgar, one of the strangest names in the Bible, Shamgar. Shamgar, who's the son of Anath, he killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he saved Israel. Now, that's all, we, that's all it says, one verse. Pastors can take that and turn that into, I mean, you can go 45 minutes on that. that I mean, that's low-hanging fruit. But you know, Shamgar used an ox goad. Now an ox goad is basically a stick to keep the ox, you know, moving along It's a prod. Today we'd use a cattle prod, something like that. Well, this ox goad, how do you get the ox moving, functioning, staying on track in the rows and so forth? You goad him. So an ox goad. Shamgar is a judge. He took an ox goad and he killed 600 Philistines. Now, there's no reference in Othniel's position uh, up in the first part of this chapter about an ox goat. How did Othniel kill the the king of Mesopotamia? We don't know. It just says they went to war and he prevailed. But the theory is, of course, he just used sort of contemporary or conventional warfare. He just went to war, so they had the regular armament. Okay, that's one way. There's another way. It's like using an ox goad. We're going to get to Gideon, and he uses pots. He breaks pots. I'm going to use Samson. It turns out Samson's a one man wrecking crew, literally. And he just uses biceps, which is what every man prefers to do. Just biceps. God can do it any way he wants, and he can do it with anybody he wants. And in this case, he uses Othniel. So what is God doing in our world? He's using people like me and you, just regular people, everyday people that God intends to use for his glory. And he uses all kinds of tools or instruments. Sometimes he uses conventional instruments, and sometimes he uses non-conventional instruments. Sometimes he uses our words, and sometimes he uses our biceps. But God always uses people to accomplish his will. God intends for people to be the influencers of people, the, if you will, the testifiers and the redeemers of people who, who say, Come away. Warning, warning, warning. Don't go over there. Stay away from that. Come away from that. Let me help you now that you've burned yourself, now that you've, you've hurt yourself, now that you've cut yourself, help, come over here and we will help bandage you up. That's what God intends for us to be the instrument. The the Lord raises up a deliverer who has the spirit of the Lord on him. This salvation comes from God. The Bible makes no bones about it. Again, you don't have to turn there. You might want to make a reference in Jeremiah 27. Jeremiah 27, the Bible says that God's going to do something similar. He's going to use Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 5, verse 7. Uh, pardon me. Chapter 27, verse 5. He says, It is I who, by my great power and my outstretched arm, have, shall say to your masters, uh, Pardon me, who made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth, and I gave it to whomever seems right to me. Now I've given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant now do you know the story of nebuchadnezzar i mean do you know the story of babylon you read the book of revelation and babylon is bad i mean real bad like totally bad like they're going to get it double triple bad in the end everything that babylon represents babylon is a synonym for bad in the bible and the bible says that nebuchadnezzar the king of babylon is god's servant not because he's a believer but because he is an instrument that the Lord intends to use. And what does he intend to do? He's going to bring oppression or judgment or discipline upon his people, and he's going to eventually take his people out of their country, the country he just gave them in the book of Joshua. He's going to take them out of that country, and they're going to go over there to Persia, to, to Nebuchadnezzar, to Babylon. They're going to go over there, and they're going to be slaves. So people like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they're deported. They're taken away from their families and away from their homeland, and they never come back, ever. They die over there. And God is doing all of that through the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And you say, well, why would God use such an evil person? Because that's what God does. He uses whatever instrument he decides to use. Because his objective is the purity of his people. His objective is the life of his people. And if his people are on a road to death, he ain't having it. He is going to put up a roadblock and say, not on my watch. So look at this again, Jeremiah 27, verse 6. I've given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. I've given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him, his son and his grandson, until the time of his own land comes. You don't know what that phrase means, but that's an idiom reference back to chapter 25. Basically, it means the end of his days until I take the land from him. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Where's Nebuchadnezzar going to end up? He's going to end up, in, <laughs> he's going to end up in slavery. A man who made his life making slaves is going to end his life as a slave. What's going on here? God's raising up a servant, and the Spirit of the Lord uses whomever God chooses. So in this case, he uses Othniel. But what is the objective of all of this? Go back to Judges chapter 3, and you'll see it there in verse 11. So the land had rest for 40 years, and then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. God gave them rest for 40 years. No cushan Rishathathim, the guy from double rivers, who's double bad, double evil. That guy, he's gone. There's no oppression. The oppression of eight years was remedied by a judge named Othniel, and then Israel had peace for 40 years. The problem is that we don't know what to do with peace. We don't know what to do with prosperity. We don't know what to do with the blessings of the Lord, and we turn to worldliness, and we turn to rebellion against God, and we forget we do the very thing Moses told us not to do in Deuteronomy 8. Don't go across that river and forget God. Don't receive these blessings from God and forget him. Don't, 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 don't do it. (laughs) Where are you today, friend? Maybe you're here today and you say, well, I haven't forgotten God. I'm pursuing him. I'm following him. I'm loving him. I'm counting on God. Praise God. Maybe you're here today and that's not your story. Maybe, in fact, you have forgotten God. You say, well, I haven't completely forgotten him, right? Because none of us, don't know who he is we have all kinds of head knowledge if you will institutional knowledge about god i know who god is and jesus and the holy spirit and the bible i know jerusalem israel egypt i mean i got all the deets but do you know him you really know him Have you found yourself drifting from god you find yourself caught up in the world and you find You find yourself not thinking about god much not concerned about god much what do you think about your sin what do you think about your rebellion against god or your absenteeism from the things of god and for the following of god have you caught up a bunch of junk in your life that need to go i would ask you to consider these things what's going on in your life do you have a savior his name is not ultimately othniel Othniel is just the instrument, but the agent is God. Do you look to the God of gods who gives you his very son to take away your sin? The the Lord wants us to look to the ultimate Savior. The book of Judges is a pointer to the fact that Othniel could provide peace. But look at this, verse 7. The land had rest for 40 years. Why doesn't the land have rest forever? Because if Othniel was the savior, we wouldn't need the savior. Turns out Othniel's not the savior. It turns out your husband's not the savior. Your wife's not the savior. Turns out your father and your mother's not your savior. Turns out the government's not your savior. It turns out that no human being is your savior. It turns out that's not where your peace is. It turns out that's not where your rest is. turns out that no piece of dirt here or in Israel is going to give you peace. There's only one who can give you peace, and it lasts forever, and that's the Lord God. I hope you look to him today. I hope you know him. We are to learn from these judges. I pray that today you will learn this one truth better than any other. That God sends instruments to remind us of the coming instrument who will one day take away the sins of the world. He is Jesus Christ. He is alone. is our Savior. (laughs) Let's remember him today. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the reminder that we are your people and that you're at work in ways. Some of those ways are hard. Some of those ways are difficult. Some of those ways are even frightening. But you're at work to love us, to show us your love, and to remind us that Jesus has saved us or will save us from the perils of this life or the difficulties that come our way. So give us grace today, much grace. We want to see Jesus, to believe in Jesus, and to hope in Jesus. We want to follow you, not like Israel does in the book of Judges, but rather the way your disciples do, who know Jesus. Give us grace to follow you more. For it's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.